Hello and welcome to the Private Capital Podcast. I'm Joe Riley and I've been in the family office investing world for over 20 years. Today we have Mark Hurley who recently co-authored a white paper called Welcome to the Jungle, the next phase of the evolution of the wealth management industry. Mark has written a number of influential papers over the years and makes some intriguing and provocative points. We go into the mechanics of the wealth management business, how to find talent, discuss the 10-year acquisition spree in the industry, and the challenges of a wealth management business, which is transitioning from a club-like place to one that is far more competitive. Mark is currently CEO of Digital Privacy and Protection, a cybersecurity company. He was the chairman and CEO of Fiduciary Network, a well-known firm that provided capital for internal transitions, acquisitions, and MBOs of registered investment advisors. Prior to that, he was the CEO of Undiscovered Managers, a mutual fund company, and started out his career at Goldman Sachs. Mark was educated at the United States Military Academy at West Point and has an MBA from Stanford. Please enjoy my conversation with Mark Hurley. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Anything said by the guests or hosts should not be construed as legal or investment advice. Thanks for listening. Were you interested in finance at a young age? Not really. I was. I went to West Point, and I served our country for five years, and then only gradually got interested when I completed graduate school and joined a little company called Goldman Sachs, where I was there for two tours over a period of about eight years. Did you ever consider a military career? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. My dad was an Air Force general. What changed your mind? Yeah. Again, part of growing up is self-discovery, but I had a phenomenal experience very close to my classmates in Washington. My class produced 34 generals, including nine, four, uh, nine three-stars and four four-stars, incredible public servants. And they fought in two wars. Did a great job. Did you take to academy life right away or was it an adjustment? I'm sure I was the worst cadet ever to successfully complete the academy. They think they retired the trophy after I graduated. I used to know my military ranking. The academy they used to rank you in every possible category. And one was your military ranking. And I always knew the size of the class because my rating was very close to the bottom. So I could always figure out how big the class was based on where my rating was over time. I was very lucky. I had some great classmates who took me under their wing, and I would not have graduated without their help. you have any opinions on the pros of an academy education today? Do you look for their alum when you're hiring? Oh, goodness, yeah. It's a, not just great education. It's the discipline. and the, it, Getting in is not the hard part. It's hard to get in, but that the hard part stank in completing the course. We had, in my class, 1555 started in 870 graduated, and we were also the first class of women. And they, boy, the stuff they went through was outrageous. The academy was utterly unprepared. And they're very, the ones who got through were courageous people. You feel like they're keeping up with the times? Oh, goodness, yeah. The academy produces tons of Rhodes Scholars every year. It, it, what's remarkable is there's always people who talk about Gen Z, Gen X, whatever, and whether they're all self-centered, that kind of bullying. That's just not true. People post 9-11 signed up to go downrange. My, my roommate from the academy did nine combat tours. This is real sacrifice. And thank goodness we have people like that because there's some very scary people out there 
who heard us, so they weren't, we didn't have people like this. What did you learn working inside of Goldman in the early 90s? It was a very different place than it is today. It was a partnership. They were obsessed with the client, taking care of the client. I can remember being in meetings where someone would come up with an idea that we can make a lot of money on. And someone would say, yeah, but that, is that really in the best interest of our client? And then you drop the idea. Today, what would cause the change in everything, and I was at a dinner once many years ago with the late Richard Rainwater. And he was talking about how Goldman was going to go from being just an agent to also getting into the principal business. And his view was, you just can't manage that conflict of interest. It's far too hard because you can make so much more money as a principal than you ever can as an agent. And that's really what's triggered the change in the culture in the organization. That said, I did two tours at Goldman, um, made a lot of really good friends, learned a lot. But again, that, I left in 1996. So it was a very different organization then than it is. And it was, it's so much bigger now. It's just, it's hard to describe. A little quick vignette. The building that I worked in was designed in 1978. And at the time when they designed the building, there were three people who traded mortgages. The fixed income was like 10 people, fixed income division when they designed it. And today there's thousands upon thousands of people in that division. It's a multi-billion operation. Wall Street took off with the globalization of finance in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, and these businesses grew like tenfold. And with that, cultures of organizations changed too. I was When I was there, it was still a fairly small place. Everyone knew everybody. I, for example, one of the people I worked with was Secretary of the Treasury under Trump, Steve Mnuchin. Mnuchin was a, I think he was trading Gini Mays. Great guy. But again, it was a very small, quaint little business compared to what we think of these places today. Was it at 85 Broad? 85 broad. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. In fact, to show you how trading was such a small part of what they did, they put the elevators in the center of the floor so they couldn't have a single giant trading floor because they never thought they'd be that big in trading. So they built a new building. They put all the elevators at the end so they could see the whole trading floor. You then started a company with a great name, Undiscovered Managers. Could you tell us the origin of that and how it played out in that very interesting market period? Although I've written a fair amount of research on the wealth management industry before that, at Goldman, I was responsible for doing research on the investment management industry. And at the time, uh, in 1995, I published a paper that predicted a lot of the changes that occurred in the investment management industry, particularly with the inclusion of capital, the shift away from investment performance to the ability to create pooled vehicles and have technology for 401k, things like that. But one of the anomalies that I identified in my research was there were these incredibly good small institutional money managers who had much, much better track records than the people who were managing money from very large pools of mutual funds. And at the same time, there was this burgeoning industry of independent wealth managers who were just getting started, and they were looking for a way to access institutional money managers. So we started a mutual fund company where we effectively provided the packaging and the distribution for the small managers. They couldn't afford to set up their own mutual fund company. But we did is we created one that was a shared one across several of these managers. And our clients, the only people we marketed to were the independent fee-only wealth manager. And our assumption was they would deliver much better returns. And when I sold the business to JP Morgan in 2004, we were the single highest ranked equity mutual fund family that Lipper trucked. Before we get into fiduciary network, could you give us a bit of a primer on the wealth management business? It's often called a, a curious business. 
the wealth management industry exists because of an obscure tax rule change that occurred in 1979, which was promulgated to the 1978 Tax Reform Act. Now, we all know this rule because it's called Rule 401k. And what it did was it allowed companies to still offer pensions, but not have to take the investment risk. They shift from defined benefit to defined contribution plans. Many companies didn't even notice it. There was a consultant, I think he was based in Pennsylvania, who spent a lot of time proselytizing about this to companies saying, you ought to get out of this. But there also was a small money management company that at the time was the 10th largest money manager in Boston, there where the sign had just taken over the family business. And he saw this and recognized the whole world was about to change. So he leveraged the company up and bet it 10 times over to build a technology platform so that people could actually provide record keeping and then be able to collect assets. That little company is called Fidelity. And that person was Ned Johnson. Almost overnight, every company they could got out of the having a pension, a traditional pension. They just they switched to 401k. In a decade, it was like a tidal wave of people getting out of that business. And in the late 80s, early 90s, the boomers woke up and realized, oh my goodness, I got to get some really good comprehensive advice or I'm going to be living under a bridge in a cardboard box in retirement. And so there's an explosion of demand for advice. There's nothing. There were brokers who were largely extensions of institutional distribution, but there wasn't anybody providing this holistic, comprehensive approach. So people literally hung out a shingle and in six months, they could make money. They'd have to raise capital. They'd get enough clients. And there were so many people seeking advice. There were firms, one firm in particular I know very well, it's done extraordinarily well. But at one point, they required potential clients to take a personality test before they would decide to take them as a client because the demand so exceeded the supply. And whenever you have a market failure like this, where the supply is, the demand for the service is so big and it's so much trips to supply, you get a, crazy things that happen. And what happened emerged into this space, this void, was a cottage industry that was made up of thousands of small wealth managers. And in terms of the research that I've done over time in 1999, we published a paper that said, look, you have to understand there's a market failure that's created this. The industry at some points can be hit by the same force as other industries. And over time, it's going to consolidate. You're going to see M&A, big firms. Now, to be sure, there's a canard put out there by a few self-anointed commentators who said that we said small firms are all going to go away. We never said that. We just said you're either going to have to get larger or you're going to make less money and work harder. And that's been proven out by the data. I mean, a $50 million firm in 1989, today, the... Inflation adjusted would be $95 million. And back then, a $50 million firm, you make a nice living. Now, a $90 million firm, you're not really going to make much money. The equivalent of that today is a $400 million firm. So if you were able to go grow four and a half times faster in inflation, you still have a great business. You'd have to be billions. And that's what really where the industry's gotten to. There's a collection of very, there's a collection of very big firms, consolidation, aggregators. There is some firms that got larger but didn't start acquiring people, they've done reasonably well. And there's a whole collection of smaller firms, all of them have great businesses. The real question is what comes next? And just to be clear, Fiduciary Network wasn't a private equity roll-up strategy. You folks didn't take equity stakes, correct? We did. It was, uh, it was synthetic equity investing. What we were doing is giving capital to wealth managers to facilitate internal transitions. And the challenge that wealth managers faced is that 
the economic value of the business was so much greater than the successors could afford to pay. They needed passive capital that could come in and fill the gap between what the business was worth and what the successors could pay. And they needed a mechanism that would lend money to the successors to come in to buy out the first generation. And that was what our business was. And so what was the opportunity set when you started? I'll give you a sense of this. There were two firms offering to provide capital to wealth managers. One was using script, didn't have any cash. It was using script and that was called Focus. And there was us and we had cash and we had very different models. We didn't compete. They, What they did was one thing, which was they bought control of businesses and we were taking non-controlling stakes, passive capital stakes in the companies we were investing in. Today, there's over a hundred firm sellers. What was the wealth management landscape like? Fragmented out the wazoo. Keep in mind, this is before the great roaring bull market of 2012 through 2021. We also had 2008, 2009 hit in the midst of all this. It was relatively chaotic. Now, what drives deals in this industry is not economics, it's demographics. If you own a wealth management firm, as long as you have some degree of scale, it's somewhat analogous to having a fire hose throwing $100 bills at you. The, the clients, if you do a decent job, you keep all your clients and they pay the same fee every year. And the only question is not whether you make money, it's how much. But at some point, you get to a certain point age-wise where you either have to find a way to monetize your the equity value built in business or you effectively have to give it away to your successors. And what we were doing is providing a mechanism for that transition. Now, what intervened between 2012 and 2021 was the Federal Reserve had started printing money during the 2008-2009 crisis, and then it kept expanding that and expanding that. And all of a sudden, there was an ocean of low-cost debt. And at the same time, private equity firms raised $2.2 trillion they had to put to work. And so as a consequence, an M&A feeding frenzy ensued. And everybody got in the business of trying to buy wealth managers. It was just crazy. The intention was never to own the firms. No, the objective was to have a economic stake in them and they would remain independent and under the control of management and perpetuity. So you had a claim on the cash flows, but you didn't get involved with the branding. You didn't get involved with the management. Exactly. We were also, we were not in the firms we were investing in were, were originally large on a relative basis and they were well-run businesses. And so they, it isn't like you're going to someone who has a little candy shop and you're going to say, oh my goodness, I'm going to help you be successful. These businesses were already extraordinarily successful. And what they needed was a way for their successor generation to become shareholders because they had already recruited extraordinary successors who were capable of help continue to grow the business and go forward. And how did you filter for the best candidates? I've been in the industry for a long time. You get to know firms. A lot of it also fit timing. A lot of it fit the internal dynamic. It's very complicated. But I think ultimately the 24 transactions and... The organizations we were fortunate enough to invest in are just extraordinary businesses. More importantly, the people that you work with in these companies were just really amazing people too. What's great about that period of my life working with these organizations is, is that they were all obsessed with taking care of their clients. Everything was about the client. And when you work with people that are that focused on their fiduciary duty, it's very easy to do business with them because you understand what they're focused on. And yeah, they want to make some money. Yeah, they're building value. But they're, this was something much bigger. And the people we had the opportunity to work with were just great. So what was the first deal like? What was it that attracted you? Getting your first deal done in anything is, to be generous, chaotic. Because there's a learning curve. 
And we were very fortunate in that there were a couple of firms that worked with us that were quite interested in putting on such a structure in. We even paid their legal fees because it was so complicated to figure out how to exactly make this work. It took many months to get a structure that worked for our capital source, but at the same token also for them. But once it got set up, these firms flourished. One of the firms we did our first deal with, I think at the time at 300 million, and now I think it has two, two and a half billion. Uh, another one had, I think, 500 million, and now it's well north of 5 billion. How did it play out for most of those companies? Did they ultimately get caught up in the M&A frenzy? At some point, buyers showed up and offered to pay, not all of them, but some of them offered to pay staggering amounts of money to buy out our backer. I had left the company by then, but to buy out our backer at an extraordinary multiple. And also some of the uh, successor owners and some existing prior founders who owned stakes still in the firm decided they wanted to monetize that. And so they were willing to sell controlling stakes in the business to certain buyers. But it was, a, you know, again, it was a very logical, it was a home run for them. I think they outgrew anything they ever dreamt they could have got to. So the problem we we're solving, while we helped address it, at least for one stage, it created other problems. And by finding another capital provider that could pay, effectively take the business to the next level was very attractive. Let's talk about your recent white paper called Welcome to the Jungle, which came out in December of 2023, and we'll have links in the notes. But before that, let's go back to your famous 1999 paper that predicted a massive consolidation in the wealth management industry. Why didn't we end up with a few dozen players? We actually never said that in the paper. An expression I use often when I give speeches is thousands have commented, dozens have read. Our papers get are fairly involved, and most of the people who write about them never even bother to read them. And I would encourage all of your readers to Read the paper for yourself. You get it for free on our website, www.dpridepro.com. The, what we, we said was the evolution of this industry would be very similar to other ones. And in the first, and the one most notably is the investment management industry. And I had studied that extensively and watched that evolution before. And what normally happens is you start with the emergence of 50 to 100 very large firms that at the time, would be considered extraordinarily large. I remember in 1999, a $400 million wealth manager was considered mid to large size. The largest independent firm in the industry was $2 billion. And we dared suggest in the paper that it would be firms with as much as $50 billion and maybe even some as $100 billion. Okay? And today, you have $200 billion firms. You have many $50 billion firms. You have, you have many firms north of $150 billion. We, what we also said is that the, in any industry, when it evolves, it divides itself into three segments. There are, is a segment that tries to get scale and, and compete on a scale basis. They use capital, and that's what we've seen with the aggregators that have come in. There's another group that will try to find some sort of niche to compete by. Now, that middle segment has not yet had to do that yet here, simply because we had such a raging bull market that a lot of the normal rules of economics have been suspended. We think now if they're going to continue to flourish, they're going to need to do that, albeit it's an incredible opportunity because no one has done it yet. And then there's a third segment in every market where you have small firms that they do a great job for clients. The owners get paid well to work there, but they, but over time, they once they grow, they make less and they the business has you know little to no enterprise value when you're done. And, and to go back to what I talked about earlier, let's say you had a $50 million firm and 
and you just kept up with inflation, you'd have a $94 million firm today. No one's buying $94 million firms. Now, had you grow not dramatically, but faster than inflation so that you say you had a $400 million firm, there are people that are buying $400 million firms. We think the same trend is going to have to continue. Otherwise, you'll get caught with kind of a, a glorified bookkeeper or barbershop. You'll have a business where when you're done, you just, there's really not a lot of value to sell to someone else. But and where those numbers wind up, if you're a $400 million firm today and it, it, the growth parallels that of what the prior period was, you'll have to have a couple billion dollars and maybe a little more in 15 years. But if the market just appreciates 5% a year and you retain all of your clients, you'll already be north of 800 million. So we're not talking about dramatic growth. But if I said simply wrote, you have to have 2 billion or you won't have any value, there'd be a headline saying, Curly says the industry dropped dead. If you go back to 1999, if I said to you, if you don't have $400 million, you're not going to have any value, that would have been analogous to saying you have to have $2 billion. But this is a normal evolution of any business, any industry. And to be sure, it doesn't mean that you go out of business. Nobody's going out of business. The, the only way a, a wealth manager will go out of business is if they don't address cybersecurity. And the reason they're going to go out of business is a combination of regulators and the plaintiff's bar will put them out of business. There's a series of regulations that have been proposed that are awaiting finalization, and they equate taking care of cybersecurity with meeting your fiduciary duties. And so if you do not take care of your cybersecurity, you should expect an enforcement action, not just your firm, but you personally. You also should expect that the plaintiff's bar has figured out cyber breaches are great opportunities for lawsuits, and cyber criminals are trying to both steal your client's assets, but more importantly, they're also trying to steal your client's information. And identity theft is a $52 billion a year business already. So that's really the only existential threat to wealth managers. Everyone else is trying to make a decision of where on this landscape do they want to land? Do they want to be part of a one of these mega firms? Do they want to have a business that is very profitable and materially larger, but it's very specialized? Or do they just want to remain a generalist? And unless they can grow significantly, but not outrageously, they're probably going to make a lot less money. And when they're done, they'll have a business that really no one's going to pay much for, if anything, for it. That's a good question. What happens to all those sub $100 million firms? What happens to barbershops? They, when they're done, they sunk by the chair and the scissors. In this case, it's like some local bookkeepers in the same way. When a bookkeeper gets ready to retire, they don't get paid much for the business may get a little bit of a trailer or something, and they hand over the clients to somebody else. The reason why you aren't seeing the aggregators chasing after them is the amount of work and time to do a deal is so involved versus the relative benefit from buying somebody small. It's just uneconomic to do it. Yeah, that's the answer. Now, the one qualifier I'll give to that is, though, you have seen the emergence of the shared resource platforms, Dynasty, Kestra, a bunch of these guys out there. Ron Carson's got a great business doing this. And increasingly, we'll see these smaller firms, I think, affiliate with organizations like that. And at some point, they'll create some liquidity mechanism, and some I think already have, where they can transfer your book to somebody else. But again, the, the magnitude of the dollars involved are, are tiny compared to if you can, if you have a standalone business today that's $400 million, or let's say three and a half, four million in revenue, and the business has real EBITDA of three quarters of a million to a million dollars, that's worth a lot more money. It's not four times as much money than say someone who's got $90 million. It's probably 10 times as much more money as that the smaller guy. 
What do you think RIA struggled to grow organically? Ah, many reasons. And we discussed this in the paper in detail. The single biggest obstacle to organic growth is the operational model that most firms have relied on. What happens is there is a, the industry has a, a, an enormous number of very talented people. However, only a subset of a subset, quite candidly, are good at marketing. And they, we, the way firms have approached this is they get their best marketers to go out and bring clients and build up personal books of business. And then at some point, the marketer's got more enough clients to handle. It's making a ton of money. It's not working very hard. And they stop marketing. In other words, they've actually set their business up to discourage their best people from continuing to bring clients in. As an economist, you would say that's madness. Now, if you're one of these people who's in that position, you don't want anything to change. Things are just great. I'm not making half a million dollars a year, and all I'm doing is servicing existing clients. I'm working on my lifestyle. What's going to change is certain firms will find a way to shift their operating structure so that people who are good at marketing, that's all they do. People who are good at closing, that's all they do. And people who are good at servicing, that's all they do. And then what they get paid, though, will be tied to the value of each of those functions. By far, the highest value function is the person who can bring the client to the door. Wealth managers are not in the business of giving advice. They're in the business of getting paid to give advice. Consequently, the people who are, are good at recruiting, building center of influence networks, generating referrals, creating opportunities, they're going to get paid a disproportionate amount of value. The lowest value-added function, I know I'll get hate mail for this, are the people who service clients. There are, there's oceans of people who want to do that. Uh, a lot of people are in this industry because they just love investments. And the idea of having to sell, oh, they'd rather have their teeth drilled. And there, there's an oversupply of those people. And so I think you're going to see a material shift in the compensation structures in the industry. Now, the obvious question is, if you own a wealth manager that has the old model, how do you get to the new model? And our research suggests there's really not an easy way to do that. And the only way it'll ultimately work is to create parallel systems. In other words, you grandfather in one set of people under one set of rules, and the new people that you recruit, you put in a different set of rules. Now, how do you get anybody just to want to market? It all comes down to compensation. And we give a very detailed analysis in the paper that looks at the economics of a client. $2 million client. We're not talking a $20 million client. Over a life of the relationship, provided they continue to save some money, has a present value for the wealth manager net of cost of about $600,000. 600000 And thinking, what if you had a $5 million client? How big that gets? What we think is going to happen over time is that people who are really good at marketing are going to get paid like four or five million dollars a year. Now, granted, they'll get paid over time as a piece of the clients, a piece of what the client generates. That'll, there'll be a risk allocation, but it'll be contractual. It won't be subjective. In other words, if you're really good at marketing, you have a contractual right to the cash flows this client generates over the life of that relationship. And the present value of that will get them to be compensated at four or $5 million a year if they're really good at marketing. The people who are closing, that's a hard function. It's a narrower function, but it's not as hard as getting the people through the door in the first place. And they'll get compensated well, but all they'll do is focus on closing. It'll be small numbers of people who do that in even larger organizations. And then the people who service, they'll make a nice living, but nothing like the people who can generate clients and the people who can close. Merger activity has been robust for over a decade. Can these multiples that are being paid be justified long-term? The market suggests not. 
let's understand the historical multiple was about eight to 12 times cash flow for a business. We saw 20 to 30 times cash flow being paid from any of the firms. Now, that was due in no small part to oceans of available debt, cheap debt that banks were just had to, they, they had to lend because they needed to earn some sort of spread. I saw deals done where the buyer used 12 times EBITDA in debt. 12. Normally you think of three, maybe three and a half terms of EBITDA on a deal, really leveraged is four or five, 12 times. Now, Federal Reserve has said, we really don't like that. And by the way, we're going to make it a lot more expensive. So 40% of all banks have tightened their lending standards. The interest rates are materially higher than they used to be. So yeah, multiples are correct. Now, the question is, where do they correct to? And one of the perhaps more controversial things we said in the paper is that we think two things will change with regards to M&A. Number one, we think that quality will finally matter. Now, to be sure, I'm not trying to insult anybody who sold their business, but consider the perspective of buyers during this frenzy. The market kept going up and up. A after-tax, a inflation-adjusted, diversified portfolio generated over a 10% return on average for year for 10 years. These businesses are effectively an operationally leveraged investment in the financial markets. In other words, their costs don't go up just because their revenues go up from the market appreciating. So if you, if say a firm, for example, for simple math purposes, had a 50% gross margin, that means its EBITDA went up 20% a year just for turning the lights on. If you're an M&A buyer, who cares what you pay as long as the market keeps going up? It papers over mistakes. What the M&A buyers were doing was betting heavily on a rising tide. And by the way, they won big. And their backers should probably hold a parade in their honor because they made up a ton of money. The problem now is that the party's over. We describe this as a financial bacchanala. It was just glorious. But going forward, it's not going to happen. Now, the second thing we said about M&A we said it was quality would matter. And first thing we said was quality would matter. And what we mean now is that there's 100 buyers. So the M&A market has gotten mature. Simply buying something doesn't make you money. It's what happens after you buy it. So you're seeing buyers are now being much more discriminating and figure out who they want to buy. To be sure, there's still some people with too much money out there. And they're running around trying just to get deals done. But that this too shall pass soon. Quality will make a significant difference. And not just for large firms, but also for small firms. That said, the second key point we made, we think the financial markets have figured out the stability of the cash flows of wealth managers is extraordinary compared to any other industry. Turnover of like 3% or less per year implies a 33-year relationship. And it's that stability and predictability of cash flows implies that 8 to 12 times cash flow is probably too low. Our personal view, depending on quality again, is that market prices will be closer probably to 14 to 16 or 14 to 17 times cash flow, depending on if you're a really good quality firm. Now, if you have a firm that hasn't grown in a long time or got other issues, no successors, it'll probably be materially less. But for good firms, I'd be surprised if you didn't see at least, say, 14 to 17 times type EBITDA pricing. What do you think about sovereign wealth funds leapfrogging private equity and coming into the space directly? Yeah. That's a great question. Sovereign wealth funds are large pools of capital that are intended to be intergenerational assets for countries or various groups. And they include some of the largest pension plans in the world, TTP in Canada, CPP, 
the Singaporean government was one of the great pioneers with Classic and the GIC. And then, of course, there's the Middle Eastern ones. If you're a private equity firm, you're probably getting a disproportionate amount of money to invest from the sovereign funds themselves. So in other words, the sovereign funds already own a big chunk of the aggregators. They just don't show up as the face. And in the middle are PE firms getting paid massive management fees. In fact, the 20% carried interest is not driving their outcomes. That's almost a rounding error. The real issue is the management fees. At some point, we believe the sovereign funds are going to say, no, explain to me again why I'm paying all these management fees, particularly when I'm already investing in these things in the first place. And they often get co-investment rights as part of their bargain with the PE firm. In other words, if I invest $500 million in your fund, I invest another billion dollars in the deals you do, but no fees are charged. So they already have the ability to co-invest. And we've heard, I've heard from a couple sources, there are sovereign funds now looking around to figure out how they can go directly in. Now, to be sure, they don't like their name on the door. They don't want the, any risks associated with that reputationally or otherwise. So what they'll do is get a someone to effectively front it for them, a small PE firm will give that small PE firm control, but they'll have the right to replace the PE firm if they want to. The only group of sovereign funds that no one's talking about are extraordinarily wealthy families. If you've got $10 billion, you're a mini sovereign fund. And I wouldn't be surprised to see some very wealthy families, either jointly or on their own, become direct investors and aggregators. Let's get back to the, the business themselves. What are the impediments to margin expansion at some of these more mature firms? Yeah, We, we have a, a real delineation within the industry. There are numerous firms. I mean, a statistic that we pr produced, well, one of the custodians had done a study of the firms that they custody for, one of the big custodians. And they told us that 70% of the firms they custody for, but for market appreciation, would have shrunk. In other words, they'd stop marketing for years. Many firms, have, except for the erstwhile you know, existing client referral, they, they haven't done any marketing. Getting new clients is just brutally hard. And it requires a culture in an organization that's obsessed with it. It requires all kinds of things that these organizations long ago let go of. And instead, many of those were acquired by the uh, aggregators. And so there's a real delineation, a continuum of where you look at where uh, a lot of firms are today. It's understandable why firms stop marketing. When your EBITDA is going up 15 to 20% a year from the market alone, just turning the lights on every year, who cares about getting new clients? Restarting that is an extraordinary challenge. Now, to be sure, there's some exceptions. There are a handful of aggregators who have never taken their eye off what really fundamentally creates value in this industry, which is adding new clients. Yes, they participated in the M&A frenzy, capitalized on the cheap debt, did acquisitions and things like that, but they never forgot that fundamentally it is organic growth that creates value in companies. But for most of the industry, it, it requires like a complete reset in the company. Now, it'll be very hard for some certain, the other types of aggregators because Many of them, the basic bargain they had with the firms they were investing is they wouldn't change anything. They didn't have autonomy. And these firms stopped marketing 10, 12, 15 years ago. And the idea now they're going to have to change and everybody's going to be held accountable. And, oh, and we're going to do all these things that are hard to do. Oh, that, that's going to be a very difficult process. Now, to be sure, the management of these aggregators and particularly their backers is extremely sophisticated. So I'm not saying anything they don't know already. I just think they're going to have a really hard time doing this. And we said that the people who are running these companies 
are going to have personalities that are crossed between Mary Poppins and Attila the Hun. Because on one sense, they're going to have to charm people to try to get them motivated. Another sense, they're going to have to be very decisive and make some very tough decisions very quickly. But the key to organic growth in this industry is first mover. And what I mean by that is, is that because the present value of clients is so enormous, right now, the cost of getting clients is a fraction of what they're worth. That's unsustainable. How can you get something worth $600,000 that costs you maybe twenty grand to get? At, at some point, that corrects. So there's a race. There's a tidal wave of new clients coming up over the horizon. There's 7 million more people the ages 45 to 60 than there are 60 to 75. Everyone thinks the boomers is the big, are the big generation. No, that's not true because they ignore the fact that the United States over the last three decades has had enormous immigration. And as a consequence, you have a staggering number of people, hundreds of thousands of people are coming online who are going to be looking for financial advisors. In fact, there'll be more clients in this industry, more than twice as many clients in my view in this industry in 15 years there are now. But the question is who can go capitalize on that? And also who can capitalize on it quickly? Because for now, it doesn't cost much relative to the value of the client. When enough people wake up to this and start chasing it, the cost of the client and the value of the client are going to start to converge. In the ultra high net worth end of this market, the value of the client is obviously very high, but they also demand a great deal of customization. Do you have any advice for those folks? I would argue that the hardest part of this business is working with the really wealthy, partly because the fees really aren't that much greater than people who are wealthy as opposed to ultra wealthy. And yes, boy, do they have demands for services. And it's also this kind of this weird aspect to it that Somebody who went to, say, Rutgers and got his MBA is probably as sophisticated a financial advisor as somebody went to Yale, but costs a lot less. Whereas ultra-wealthy people like the idea that the person calling on went to Yale, even though there really isn't that much differential value. Sorry to anybody's Yale grad. You're all wonderful. But wealth management, is it's not really differentiated by those types of credentials. What's also going to happen, and this is one of the really big changes we see coming, is that this is an industry where big firms today allow little firms to compete with them on equal terms. In other words, if I went to a firm that had $500 million, they would say, we'll do ABC for X dollars. And if I went to, say, a $20 million firm, they would say, we do ABC for X dollars. And you go, well, that doesn't make sense. You're so much bigger. Why would you let these guys compete equally? And the only basis for differentiation is, Gee, we do such a better job than the little guys do. That's really what they're arguing. That's about to change. What you're about to see, and it's already starting to happen with a couple of firms, they're going to say, we don't do ABC. We do ABC, D, E, F, and G for X dollars. And that's how they squeeze their little competition. Now, if you're targeting the ultra high net worth, your model is you do ABC, D, E, F, and G, but you charge separately for D, E, F, and G. What you're going to start seeing is people targeting the two to $20 million clients and doing a lot more for the same fees. And this is going to put fee pressure on the MFOs. And the MFOs, I think, are really unprepared for this because they're, they have such a distinct service offering versus, say, people who's targeted the two to 20 that they can differentiate that pricing. You're going to see convergence in these offerings. And also, I think you're going to see is some of the larger MFOs are going to get much more aggressive in their pricing. They're intentionally going to try to compete on this basis. Why is it so difficult to source talent for these firms? Industry's got a real talent crisis. 
According to Cerulli, approximately 37% of the industry is going to retire in the next 10 years. I probably, I think it's probably a little less than that, but still a lot of people are going to retire. And these are the people who tend to be the ones who generate most of the clients, the people who started the companies. And there is no pool of trained, unhired people waiting to be grabbed. If you work in investment banking, for example, these, they will have a training class of 100 people. And they have an expectation that in five years, maybe 20 of those people will still be in the organization. So they just created 80 trained people for lesser firms to go hire somewhere down the road. That didn't exist in this industry. Because it started as a cottage industry, people literally only hired people that they needed. And it wasn't until recently that we saw $10 billion firms. These were still relatively tiny businesses. And being a wealth manager is far more than just training. Uh, you're helping people manage that extraordinarily complex relationship that they have with their money. So consequently, what you can't just have it as training. It's a combination of training, years of experience, and most importantly, judgment. So you can be an advisor to somebody. And you can't develop that overnight. So you have a big chunk of the industry getting ready to leave. And then you have not really a lot of replacements behind them and an immense organic growth opportunity ahead. So one of the things we are you're about to see is an all-out battle for talent. And where are you going to get talent? You're going to run up the Jolly Roger and you're going to poach them from your competitors. This is an industry for years that's been like a club. Everybody's friendly. We all share our best ideas. We don't steal clients. We don't steal employees. The reason we call the paper Welcome to the Jungle it's about to change very significantly. And there's a very large aggregator now that's being sued by two firms for, for stealing talent. I just saw that in uh, CityWire did a, does, a, does a good job of tracking this. It's, this is going to become commonplace. And our advice to everybody is first and foremost, the, the leading rule in the jungle is to not get eaten. Don't worry about eating others. Make sure you don't get eaten. And so the smart firms are going to take steps to create the robust financial incentives to keep their best people. And then they're going to go start trying to steal people away from other firms. But the winning it, winners in this battle are going to be determined by who can get the talent as opposed to, because that's the precondition to getting the clients. And all the economic value that's going to be created in this industry, there's the financial engineering approach is gone. It's really going to be organic growth. So if you can get the talent and you can use it correctly and you can execute it correctly, you will wind up building a tremendous amount of value. But again, you've got a shrinking pool of talent, an exploding pool of potential clients that are coming out there. And this is why it's so important that people figure out how to use people most efficiently. You had a great line in there. The firms will restructure their operating models from athlete-based to specialized by function. What do you mean by that? Yeah, this is what I was speaking to earlier. Why would you have somebody who's really good at marketing service clients? It's madness. I call it the, the self-inflicted wound of the industry. You should be creating a compensation structure and an incentive structure that people are really good at marketing, that they are obsessed with just doing that. And all their time is spent on that. It's a very small subset of a subset of the industry. You can actually do this. And then hire other people to do closing, which is, you don't need a lot of those for a firm. But on top of that, you have people who are good at servicing. And have them just do servicing. In other words, you specialize by function. But this is very disruptive because if I'm one of these people who's really good at marketing, and let's say I'm getting paid, I don't know, half a million, three quarter million dollars a year just to manage my book, and I'm I'm working effectively 20 hours a week. 
last thing I want to do is change anything. And the quickest way to blow a firm up is to try to force a change like that onto people. I think the only way people will be able to shift to this model is to create dual systems, where on one hand, you grandfather in existing people who aren't interested in changing, and then you create this massive personal wealth creation opportunity for those who are willing to be in the other system. By giving them equity? You're giving them the equivalent of equity. Equity is just a right to cash flow. And what you're saying to them is you can give them equity if you want to, but the reality is you're saying, I'm going to give you a portion of the cash flows generated by your clients that you bring in. So go bring more in, you'll have bigger and bigger cash flows generated by these clients. Over the years, with all this merger activities, ha have you seen any companies that do cultural integration right? It's usually the hardest thing. Yes. But let's understand, it's not like they're converting people's cultures. The firms that they're acquiring already have a certain culture that is maybe not identical, but it's consistent with their culture. And we, the reason a question like that is very pertinent right now is because, keep in mind, the M&A frenzy was about getting as long as possible in a rising bull market. In other words, who cared about quality? Who cared about culture? Who cared about this stuff? You just simply get as big of firms as you possibly can because if the market keeps appreciating, their value is just going to go up automatically. And so there was this insane frenzy to buy whatever you could and the bigger, the better. A handful of firms said, and there were particularly ones that were ones where there was a key owner who still who personally owned the business. It may have brought some outside capital in, but and you can think of some of these people I might be talking about. And from the beginning, they realized, look, at some point this party ends and I have to have an organization that's going to be able to continue to flourish. So I'm not going to kick the cane down the road. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'll be aggressive in trying to buy people, but I'm only focused on the people I really want to buy. And one in particular, for example, uh, I'm not going to use any names, but uh, he would show up at meetings, and you know, while there were say ten firms being sold in the market, he'd meet, figure he'd want one or two of them because they'd be a good fit for his organization, and he would show up at a bidder meeting where they'd line up like four or five different bidders to come in and meet with the uh, sellers, and say it, say it to the seller, "I will give you X dollars and close in seven days if you take my bid right now." Effectively, preempt the whole process. I'll take the risk away from you. I'll take the risk that everything isn't perfect with your business, but I will write you a check at closing, you know, X dollars, and I'll give you X more later, but I will close in seven days. If you, as opposed to having to wait six months and, or three months while your banker fucks around and does other things. And that organization cherry picked a lot of very good firms and effectively preempted a lot of processes. And the, the seller still got paid full value, but this guy picked the ones he wanted because he was willing to take risks that other buyers weren't because the other buyers would have to go to a board or a committee and say, hey, can we make this change? Can we do this or could we do that? And this person says he was the controlling shareholder. He can make the decision on the spot. Can you help us get a grip on how the new SEC cybersecurity regs are going to affect wealth managers? Yeah, I just published an article with Brian Hamburger, who's one of the top attorneys in the industry. I published it in September. It's And the headline was, the SEC is about to rock your world on cybersecurity. And it, it's going to cause a host of changes. Uh, one of the big changes involves disclosure to clients. You're going to have to disclose to clients what the counterparty risks they incur from using your service. And one of the biggest counterparty risks that nobody talks about is that the custodians that clients are required to use require the client to take all the risk of cyber thefts. 
if you actually read the agreements, if the client is even indirectly at fault for having the account get hacked and the money get stolen, the custodian does not make them whole. And they've made it very clear. And most advisors have never even read the custodial agreements, much less told their clients about this. Now they're going to have to tell clients, by the way, if that account gets hacked, your money's gone. You ain't getting it back. And this is going to force them to have to play a role, in our view, in helping their clients with their cybersecurity because the clients can go, what do I do? I don't know how to handle this stuff. Other things it's going to require. You're going to have written procedures and policies that are uh, adequate, is the term they use, reasonably adequate to protect clients against theft of two things, client information and client assets. And this follows employees, not just at work. It follows them. They specifically talked about employees working remotely or when traveling. Additionally, you're going to have to address insider threats. One of the SEC's big concerns is that somebody internally could steal information and sell it. And this is borne out by what's happened with many companies around the country. And a single client file right now in the aftermarket will go for about a thousand bucks. So let's say you have, you know, 200 clients, some person as a receptionist could come in, steal the, the information for 200 people and sell it for 200 grand in the, on the dark web in the aftermarket. And you'd even never know who did it. And so it's going to force people to make a set of changes. Additionally, you're, if you get breached, you will have to self-report within 48 hours to the SEC. Historically, the way it works is the SEC comes in and does an exam and it's hopefully don't find this. So they won't give us in trouble contest here. That game's over. If you are breached within 48 hours of identifying it, you must self-report to the SEC. You then also must disclose it to your clients. And it becomes a permanent part of your Form ADV that you not only got breached, why it happened, and what damage occurred as a result of this. So it's not like this can be swept under the rug anymore. So what is this going to mean? One, wealth managers are going to have to wake up and say, okay, I have to deal with cybersecurity and figure out how to do it. The good news, and my partner, Carmen Sigales, who used to run the Army Cyber Warfare Strategy and her real life used to hunt bad guys down using the internet. He and I are working along with Brian Hamburger on a piece that we'll be publishing later this year that kind of walks through the steps of what you have to do. And the basic steps aren't really expensive and they really aren't that complicated. But if what, what you want to do is think about this systematically. Think about how large you are. If you're a very, let's say you have a bunch of clients who have you know, half a million dollars of assets, you're not very large. You're not going to be as attractive a target, say, if you work with clients with $10 million and you're managing $10 billion. You have to think about where you fit on that continuum. You have to figure out what steps make sense for you. And then you also have to think about what is the SEC going to decide are industry best practices. And that's the wild card. They intentionally did not address this other than to say they're going to evolve as firms get breached over time and that they apply to all registrants. The other thing they said in the, the proposed rules is they believe that these rules will have a disproportionately difficult impact on smaller firms. They accept that as part of the proposal. And they expect that all firms are going to have to spend significantly more on cybersecurity. They actually put this in the proposal. They didn't attempt to sugarcoat it. What does this mean? I think everybody's going to have to get up the curve very quickly on cybersecurity. The good news is it really isn't as mysterious and complicated as it sounds. But to give you one simple example that everyone's going to have to do, why would you let everybody in your firm be able to access every client's information? 
That's crazy. That information can be stolen. It's valuable. And also, why would you not segment that information? In other words, you need a different set of credentials to get into one set of information versus another set of information versus another set of information. All right. But, but setting that up isn't very hard because virtually all the systems you already use allow you to do this. You just have to get off your us and do this. The other thing you're going to have to worry about is not just your employees' cybersecurity at work, but also their cybersecurity away from work. In other words, are you know because if I can breach you at home, I can easily get to into your work. We recently helped an executive at a large financial services company who called us out of the blue because we weren't working with him. Our company does some personal cybersecurity, and someone had hacked in and was attempting to get into their work email, had gotten into all his brokerage and custodial accounts, had gotten into his bank account had locked he and his wife out of their devices and out of their home network. And fortunately, he got a hold of us early enough and our team was able to fix it. But we figured out they went through the doorbell. In other words, any place that you're, for lack of a better term. Sorry, did you say the doorbell? Oh, again, smart home technology, coffee pots, another way to get in through these things. The single most common way that, that home networks get breached is through security cameras. And so you're going to have to think about, okay, cybersecurity is not about technology. That's one of the great myths. Yes, you have to have certain technology. It's about where humans intersect with technology. And the two groups of humans that create the real risk to your wealth management firm being breached are your own employees, not just at work, but also away from work, and your clients. And you're going to have to get involved in addressing that over time if you're going to be able to have good cybersecurity. It reminds me of the old expression, PEBCAC. The problem exists between the computer and the chair. Yes, that is correct. <laughs> that is correct. You give me a simple example, okay? There's a company out there called Hive, which does consulting for cybersecurity. Brilliant company. And they do what are called simulated brute force attacks where they use computers to guess passwords. About a million passwords a week in the United States are compromised. And they found now with ChatGPT, if you use an eight-digit alphanumeric password for any account, they can the computer can correctly guess it in less than one second. And the reason is they use the computer connects to the web, learns enormous amount about you automatically using artificial intelligence software, Companies have been breached all the time and passwords are disclosed when that happens. So they grab what passwords are associated with you. They do multiple variations of them. And then they make an attempt to, to guess your password. And they are successful almost all the time in less than one second. However, if you're using an 18-digit alphanumeric password, it takes 79 billion years for the computer to correctly guess it. So this means what you're really talking about here is fundamentally basic cyber hygiene. Unique passwords that are lengthy and complicated for all your accounts. You use some really widely available, low-cost technology like a VPN, a password manager, private email. Really basic, simple steps. If you take this, you become a hardened target and the bad guys find other people to go after. Last question. What is the future of the wealth management industry? How does this M&A craze play out? Let's talk about the future of the industry separate from the M&A craze. M&A craze is over. Still going to be lots of M&A, let's be clear, but that's not what's going to create value. It's organic growth. My view is this is the greatest time ever to be in this industry. And the reason it's such a great time is you have this tidal wave of new potential clients coming online. But the same token, 
This industry has this weird trait of there really are no specialty firms today. In other words, people will say, I specialize in doctors are not a specialty, dermatologists are a specialty, neurologists are a specialty. But they have both those two groups have fundamentally different business models, different issues, different problems they need help solving with. Specialty businesses are ones that have extraordinarily deep expertise in a very narrow group of clients. And no one has built brands that say, we are the experts to do this. Lawyers, for example, are not a specialty. Lawyers working at big firms, maybe especially, but not get people own smaller businesses because they have very different issues they have to deal with. And what's going to happen is we believe is that firms today say maybe you have 400 million or a billion or something like that are going to build specialty businesses. They're going to become go way up the curve and value-added and build a brand that communicates that expertise. And what they're going to go is from simply helping manage wealth to playing a key role in helping their clients build wealth. Some of these organizations say, for example, they work with tech execs. They may even recruit a executive recruiter to work for them to help them help the client figure out how to plan their careers. But once you've built a brand as the expert with for people in a certain group with a certain set of problems, what you created is a pull strategy. You don't have to push your information out there. The clients find you. And very quickly, you have a capacity problem. And we think we're going to see 200 to 500 firms emerge from this. They may acquire other specialty firms at some point, create bigger ones. But those businesses are going to be extremely valuable, extremely profitable, because although everybody's going to have to do more for clients, they're going to be able to charge a premium price. Because if you need that expertise, you're willing to pay for the value that's created from that. And additionally, they'll get scale. And so when you look at the future of the industry, yes, you're going to see these mega firms. And we think there'll be 30 or 50 firms with a half a trillion to a trillion dollars. And the and likely people who are going to be those firms have already been decided. But it's very hard to start a de novo aggregator and get big enough ever because most of the mid-sized firms have been acquired. The real exciting spot is this middle swath. Firms are going to have $5 billion to $100 billion, and they're going to be specialized. They're going to make a tremendous amount of money, and they're going to do, extra- more importantly, they're going to do extraordinary things for clients. They're going to make go from simply saying, hey, you've made some money. Let me help you manage it and meet your goals, to we're going to play a key role in helping you build your wealth. And then there's going to be a large chunk of the industry that kind of likes what they do, generalists. Unless they get materially larger, they're going to make less money probably work a little harder because they're going to have to do a lot more for the client for the same fees. And when they're done, there's really not going to be a lot of value there to sell. That said, they're going to be able to work in wealth management and make a difference in people's lives. So in no way are we saying that's a bad thing. We're just saying it's an economic choice that they've decided to make. Mark Hurley, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your great insights. Thank you very much for including me. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or share it with your friends. Thank you.